Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show, offering unique insights and in-depth analysis, featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers, and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got a brisk 30 minutes on the latest South African and global news. We're live and then up as a podcast. We'll bring you insightful interviews with key business and political figures, prominent newsmakers and leading experts, all packed into a concise and informative update. It's Monday, the 29th of January. Coming up on the program, the country's steel industry is buckling. Israel on notice after the ICJ ruling. What comes next? The shocking conditions of Air Force HQ have been exposed. We'll look at festive season reports on border control and why the Build One South Africa party has put jobs at the center of its manifesto. The decline in jobs in the metals and engineering sector is nothing short of staggering. New figures from the Steel and Engineering Industries Federation of Southern Africa show that just over 300,000 are employed right now, which is a significant drop from half a million a couple of years ago. So the big question, of course, is can the industry survive? I'm going to talk now to Tafadzwa Chibanguza, who is Chief Executive Officer of the organization. And firstly, then, a warm welcome. What are the main factors contributing to this situation? So the decrease has to be looked at in two phases, right? There's the one that we reported on between 2008 and uh, current, 2023. That's where the numbers went from 577,000 to 362. That's the current number. So you've got a decline of about 214,000 jobs there. In that first round, it's really been the issues plaguing the local economy, low GDP growth, and particularly low gross fixed capital formation or spend, both at a state as well as at a private sector level as well. And then also what we saw is around about that 2008 period, we saw there was a deep structural shift between the export market shifting from majority of products going to the EU and the bulk now going into Africa. So while that's an opportunity in itself, the volumes also decreased. So you have that structural decline continuing. I've mentioned, and also we know from 2008 is when electricity crisis started deepening. You've got transnet issues also particularly worsening from about 2015 onward. So it's really the underlying structural headwinds facing the economy that have been driving this number and naturally being a real sector economy it responds to economic activity and we haven't seen that and hence the decline and all of those factors of course remain so you're not arresting that decline in any way significantly are you Correct, correct. That's a good point. And then that then, in fact, talks to our next numbers that are looking forward. So the second phase of the numbers that are captured in that piece there um, basically says in the absence of reform, that's number one. But you also now have the ArcelorMittal development also that's come to the fore. Then if you take the combination of if you project out the rate at which employment has been decreasing, 
which one can conceivably project out that number in the medium term in that reform takes a while, right? So you project out the historic job losses and keep that rate. You then also modify it for the impact of the ArcelorMittal closures. And then what then that does is it gives us a number in the order of about 48,000 jobs. That's direct jobs. And then when you apply the economic multipliers of this sector across the economy, that's how you get to that 290,000 jobs. So it's an important point maybe just to close out on is that the 290 is an economy-wide job loss which includes the direct of about 48,000 and then the balance being the indirect induced jobs. Against this backdrop, do you believe the industry can survive? In the absence of reform, history is a perfect indicator of the fact that if what we are currently experiencing as an economic headwinds, if that continues in the absence of reform, then we are talking continued deterioration and basically the sector being unable to survive. But the rider there is that in the absence of reform, because the history has already indicated the fact that this structural decline has continued. So that is not even a subjective point one is making. So looking forward in the absence of the two critical areas on energy and rail, I think those are the two main ones. There's a third one that is creeping in quite a bit, which is the local municipality deterioration. And that's really where the rubber hits the tar from infusing costs into the manufacturers who operate in the different municipalities and that affects competitiveness. So the combination of those three, unarrested in terms of the decline that they are contributing, will continue to see the sector deteriorating to the numbers that I've already Mm. mentioned. When you raise Mm. this issue either with national or local government, given the two types of problems that you've outlined, do you have Mm. any confidence that you're being heard? To be honest, I have to say that that year sort of turned the corner and uh, in terms of being heard, right? So historically, um, I think they were generally felt this wall that you were hitting into when raising these issues and the solutions. And much of the solutions include a lot more private sector participation on rail, on energy and the rest. And what we are seeing that we are beginning to be heard is that we see it with the reform on the energy side. We see at least early stages signals of reform on the logistics side, particularly if you consider what Treasury has said that Transnet's bailout is conditioned on private sector participation. On the local municipalities, not so much. So the point really I'm making is that they've been forced into looking at the alternative, which is bringing in private sector, because the but rate let of me pick you. Let me pick so you up on the private sector all very well, but it's not a panacea yeah. for a complete fix here, given that the private sector is reticent to get involved because of the pace of change that is needed in order to make a solid investment. Fair point. But you, what you have seen, and um, we are involved in a number of work streams directly as CIFSA, so Steel and Engineering Federation, mm-hmm. with the presidency um, around work streams to unlock um, our involvement in a number of, some are project-based and some are at a higher level. We are involved directly as CIFSA again in the National Energy Crisis Committee. But to answer your point more directly is that the involvement of companies now, particularly where they are making offers at local government level, goes again to the point that that's where the rubber hits the tar and that's where they're feeling the most amount of pressures. So where they can get involved, they are doing it not only for, mustn't come across in a controversial way, but it's not for profiteering one, nor is it for patriotic reasons, but really it's to just 
maintain their survival for their own survival that's that's the reason why they are involved i could give you one practical example of a of a large multinational who um, had an insurance audit and on the day of that insurance audit there was no water coming to the site and of course then they were then put on provisional um, um, insurance until they had to put a solution uh, 20 million rand later they now have an on-site solution um, because it's a fire risk so the point really i'm saying is that that's the type of micro level impact of local government impact and we see a number of companies putting their hands up to want to participate at least in arresting some of these declines and our role as then organized business is to aggregate those offers of assistance and bring them to the fore to our government counterparts all right uh, tafadzwa chibanguza thank you very much indeed ceo of cisa money web at midday for all your up-to-date stories Now, the broad consensus is that the ICJ has put countries supporting Israel on notice. It's after Friday's genocide decision by the court. I want to give you some essential analysis now on the decision. Professor Magnus Kalanda is a professor of human rights law and head of research at the Center for Human Rights at the University of Pretoria. Professor, a very warm welcome. Uh, I want to ask you, first of all, How decisive a victory was this for South Africa, which obviously has been lauded in this country? Uh, This was the request for intervention that the state of Israel shall immediately suspend its military operations in and against Gaza. And that was not granted by the court. Yes. So uh, while it is a victory, I guess it's uh, somewhat of a of a limited one in the sense that uh, the uh, ceasefire wasn't wasn't granted and, and it was, would be difficult for the uh, court perhaps to do that, we'll find a legal basis to grant that uh, in in this in its orders. Uh, but even when it called on the hostages to be released for the parties to um, adhere to international humanitarian law, uh, in that par- paragraph, just before uh, the operative paragraph setting out uh, the direct orders to, to Israel, Uh, One could have thought that they would have included something around that uh, uh, cessation of of, of calling for a cessation of hostilities as well. Uh, That wasn't done, uh, but I think that was the price for to pay for uh, near unanimity unanimity uh, in the uh, in the decision. So very simply, then, what in fact has been achieved? So uh, I think it's important that provisional measures were issued. Uh, it put some pressure on 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 Israel uh, and on states that uh, that, that support uh, Israel in this in in, in this war. Uh, they need to think more about uh, not proceeding with uh, indiscriminate killings and the uh, access to basic services and. Uh, and uh, humanitarian aid must be improved. Uh, but at the same time, we now have the uh, the situation with UNRWA, which uh, with funding uh, being uh, suspended uh, based on allegations to, uh, at some staff, uh, at like 12 staff members uh, of, of the thousands uh, within the organization. It's going to surely be very difficult to apply any sort of pressure on Israel, given the support it has from the United States and the U.S.'s veto rights within the U.N. General, within the U.N. Security Council? Yes, I think uh, there will be uh, calls again for the U.N. Security Council to, to take further measures. They issued 
a resolution sometime back in relation to uh, access to, uh, to 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 aid. I don't think they will move any any further than uh, than than that based on uh, on on the current situation. The court professors also also requires Israel to report on measures taken to supply or to comply with the Genocide Convention. Um, That, if I read this correctly, has got to be submitted one month after the order. Uh, Does that offer an opportunity for Israel to present its narrative? Would anything change from what it presented to the court in the first place? So, so I guess uh, what they presented in the hearing on provisional measures, I guess what was a lot about, uh, we have done this, we have done this, we have done this. Uh, so I guess in that report, one can probably expect much of the same. Uh, it would be interesting if they highlight that there were any difference between mm. what they say that they did before the order and after. Uh, but uh, presumably they will uh, continue with uh, much of the... Of, of the same type of rhetoric. The, the ruling, if I read this correctly, also highlights um, the isolation of the United States in its support for Israel. So I'm wondering then what you think the broader geopolitical implications are going to be in terms of the way in which foreign policy stacks up between important countries. So I think, it, I mean, uh, the US is not... So isolated. I mean, uh, there are plenty of supporters also on the European side. So it becomes very much like global south against global global north. Uh, there are exceptions on the European side, for example. Uh, you could see it now uh, in in the response, for example, uh, among donors to UNRWA, where uh, uh, Norway and Ireland maintain their support, while many other European countries have withdraw it not the european union itself and and uh, but also uh, japan for example the other one is practical um, work on the ground i guess and do you think this interim ruling is in any way going to affect israel's military operation and overall strategy in gaza if you look at what's happened on saturday and sunday uh, very little seems to have changed in terms of operational conflict so it doesn't seem to, uh, to to have influenced it. Of course, there's been uh, been uh, pressure on on Israel, even from the United States. I mean, to uh, to to be uh, to to take some measures of restraint in relation to their operations. It doesn't really seem to have uh, uh, registered much with the uh, with Israel's military leadership. So. Uh, so, so I can't see that there will be a direct effect because, I mean, they would always come back to that. I mean, uh, no, but uh, these actions that we have taken are not genocidal. So, I mean, the order mm-hmm. doesn't really affect us because, uh, I mean, we're already abiding by the convention. Uh, and just because uh, the uh, ICJ thought that there was a plausible case, that doesn't mean that there was genocide and therefore we are within our uh, aims and we are also adhering to international humanitarian law. Uh, of course, the letter is uh, quite clear that they went beyond what is allowed uh, under international humanitarian law, both in relation to uh, indiscriminate uh, killings, uh, forced displacement, uh, restrictions on uh, on basic services and uh, and access to humanitarian aid. And I mean, this is what is underlying the provisional order. Uh, so. 
so they can be held accountable in, in due course uh, for this as a country. And of course, there's also the possibility of, of individual accountability for, mm. uh, for perpetrators of, uh, of, of war crimes and crimes against humanity and even genocide, but that would be difficult to, uh, to prove in a criminal court. Um, but I mean, that would have taken place on both sides of the of the conflict. And just very quickly, of course, the, the, the human rights tragedy continues and uh, there's been discussion this week about uh, certain countries revisiting policy in terms of supplying aid. Yes, so, so I mean, that is the response then to uh, UNRWA, the, uh, the uh, United Nations Relief and Work Agency in, in Palestinian areas. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very disappointing. I mean, it's sort of like a collective punishment for uh, the possible involvement of, uh, of, of a few uh, workers that have then already been uh, been been fired, uh, the ones that are still alive, uh, and um, there's an ongoing investigation. So uh, why one should put the whole operation, the, re- the whole relief operation in jeopardy on this basis, um, when it's at its most needed, of course, there needs to be accountability for mm-hmm. this in the in the future but at the same time one must continue with the relief effort i mean that, that's an order by the uh, by the international court of justice that the relief efforts must uh, must must be up so that one doesn't reach a humanitarian catastrophe i mean one is already there uh, but to remove uh, unrwa's involvement would would make it even worse professor magnus kalanda thank you very much indeed you're listening to MoneyWeb at midday Let's return now to domestic politics and this weekend the Build One South Africa Party launching its manifesto and there is a principal focus on job creation. The deputy leader Nabuntu Klazo Webster says the party has spent months engaging communities which culminated in the manifesto. Let's get more details on that now. A very warm welcome to you. Now the manifesto as I've just said is centering around a jobs plan but you'll agree that high unemployment rates are often tied to broader systemic issues, education quality skills development, industrial policy, the list goes on and on. So how does your manifesto then address these interconnected challenges? Hi, Jeremy, and thanks for having us on the show. Um, So it does exactly that, Jeremy. Um, Our jobs plan looks um, at growing the economy for jobs, but also at reforming education um, and building a capable state because part of the issues that we have are systemic um, and because of the inefficiency of government. And, and lastly, it also looks at creating a safe environment because, as we all know, um, issues like investment um, become a challenge when you don't have a safe environment and you have one of the highest crime rates in the world. And one of the other things that we've looked at and that we've considered um, is that we have to tackle inequality um, in, 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 our, in our country and in the economy. And that means that we have to focus on the lack of basic levers. Um, quality education, um, basic services like municipal services, because those are the things that also hinder upward income mobility. So those are the things that we've looked at and that we've focused on as it pertains to creating employment. How does your plan differentiate itself from other parties who have the same thinking? So I think, first of all, that holistic uh, kind of um, approach um, is a differentiator from from other parties but the other thing um, that differentiates us is that we've really really focused on very tangible plans to be able to support the small um, business economy and the township economy particularly and and and, and rural economy because 
you know, while we've had policies, um, even in government today, that speak to that, we haven't actually seen the output on that and we haven't seen um, a, a significant growth um, in that sector. And as we know, the mainstream economy currently just can't absorb um, the extent of um, uh, unemployment that we have in this country. Mm. So we've got very um, specific plans that speak to that. Um, we speak of um, a national venture fund for graduates um, from TVETs and universities um, and to, su- to support those those young people who want to create companies um, in line with the strategic manufacturing um, pillars that we've, we've, we've looked at and, we've, uh, and, and, and that we've tabled. We look at uh, jobs and justice funds, um, and this is where businesses, um, big business, can contribute empowerment funding, which will be administered by public finance professionals and not politicians, to be able to make sure that real empowerment happens um, through distribution um, to real empowerment uh, initiatives for businesses in the townships, for businesses in rural areas. Um, we've also tabled a national civilian service, and you were speaking about skills. This helps. It's a year-long program. It's designed for post-matriculants. It helps to be able to give them the skills because actually we've found that part of the gap at the moment is because young people are not skilled and are not workplace ready. So to allow that workplace readiness and to give them the skills that they need to be able to work. Where would you find the money to do this? So... First of all, a lot of the budget that we have, and we can never discount this, um, there's, there's budget that is allocated to numerous programs, whether it be it in the DCI, um, whether it be it in the provincial economic development um, ministries, and you find that that money is either underutilized or you find that it's actually, because of corruption, uh, it's actually mismanaged. So there's, first of all, those funds, and every time we talk about any programs, we can never overlook that reality. We're also looking at um, uh, selling some of the, 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 the shares which government holds, which they don't necessarily need to hold, which can be better used to be able to fund this boost to the economy and to create jobs as well. That's just two of the, 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 the areas that we've looked at. I'm interested in your engagement with community in terms of where you want to take your policies. And it would be surely finding a balance between the community initiatives that you've outlined with the need for government intervention in one way or another. How do you strike that balance? So, I mean, the community initiatives that we've outlined, a lot of them are initiatives that we've already started doing as a party who is not in government. Um, We've framed the term of government in working because you know, it's become very clear that South Africans actually want to see what it could look like to have an alternative in government. So we've got numerous programs um, that we already have and that we're running um, and working with communities. But absolutely, there is a need for an extent of government intervention. And once you're in government, the plans that are out now now are part of what we would do to be able to partner with communities in bringing employment and making um, communities safer. When we speak of education, um, we speak of various initiatives as well, as well as when we speak of safety, we speak of various initiatives as well, which would be partnerships between government and communities. Um, and when we look at the macroeconomy, we've also spoken and looked at um, partnerships with the private sector as well, because that's also going to be important. So it's not only partnerships with the communities that are important, which we are doing now and which must be done at a government level and have a level of government intervention, but it's also uh, partnerships with the private sector. Well, that's the thinking from the Build One South Africa Party, Nabuntu Klauser Webster. Thank you very much indeed. You're listening to Money Web at Midday.
The Border Management Authority says over the recent festive period, more than 15,000 people tried to enter the country illegally. The Commissioner of the Authority is Mike Masiapato and joins me now. So firstly then, there have been efforts and collaboration with various law enforcement stakeholders, but that number of 15,000 still shows how large the scale of the problem is. Yeah, indeed, uh, Jeremy, it does uh, demonstrate the scale of the problem of uh, illegal migration. And if you look at that number of uh, 15,900, you will also note that around 6,000 of those were intercepted at Libombo, fairly surpassing uh, Bait Bridge, which is sitting at around 1,800 or so. So that on its own is also demonstrating a shift. But in that particular context, our understanding is that the intensification of the uh, border law enforcement functions around Bait Bridge itself has fairly deterred some individuals to do what they used to do before, which has been to come through, uh, particularly in the vulnerable segments, with the intention to come into the country illegally. But if you are to look at Libombo, you will realize that because we have not as yet uh, had a very intensified process, that is why you see that the number or the majority of those had been picked up at Libombo, as it were, which is around 6,000. But however, as we are to look at the overall, the overall number, remember, is 27,000 plus of the people that were denied entry, being in three categories. The first being those without documents at all, the second ones being the undesirables, and the third ones being the the ones that were inadmissible. So all in all, it's 27,000 plus. Mm. Obviously, then you would be looking at additional measures uh, to enhance border security. What are those, and uh, are you being funded sufficiently in that respect? You see, Jeremy, we actually say that uh, it was a bit unfortunate that at the point of the establishment of the Border Management Authority, we came at a time when the fiscus is fairly constrained. So what we have been doing had been to engage with the uh, you know, leadership in the space to be able to demonstrate the criticality of some additional resources into the Border Management Authority, particularly looking at the impact of illegal migration into South Africa itself in a number of ways, crime and the other issues, but also looking at the impact of the illegal movement you know, of uh, you know, illicit goods into the public and the impact that has to our efforts for economic growth. So at the end of the day, the issue is about doing some sort of a juxtapositioning of those realities, the impacts, as it were, to the actual investment into the border environment. Mm-hmm. So all of those motivations had fairly been done. We continue to engage uh, and we are very much hopeful that there should be appropriate allocation of resources, particularly around the issue of technology. Border management in this day and age, it requires high technology such as your drone uh, technology to be able to pick up any activity along the line, but also uh, technology such as your body cams to be able to monitor the activities of the officials and be able to uh, effectively pick up if there is any possible corrupt tendencies in the environment. And we are very much hopeful that as we go to the next financial year, there should be some uh, additional resources. But without those uh, resources and support, uh, your job is going to be constrained. Yeah. That is very much true, uh, Jeremy. If you are to look at the magnitude of the work that we have to be doing and you are to look at the capacity that we are sitting with, it is very much low. That is why during the festive period, if you remember when we were launching the actual plan for the festive, 
we had to go and borrow over 380 just human resources from departments to borrow them to come through and assist us on issues of managing the movement of people from an immigration point of view. So as we speak now, after the festive operation, those individuals exit the port, go back to their departments, and we remain as you know constrained as we are. So those are very much uh, real issues. But at the end, what we are intending to do as the Border Management Authority so that the country should be able to see the value for money is to do our best with anything that we have with the view that our contribution uh, should be visible so that we can be, in a way, able to attract some investment our way. What are you doing to strengthen compliance among transport companies that are often uh, involved in the whole issue of illegal immigration? So what we did, uh, Jeremy, particularly with the issue of the 2nd and the 3rd of December uh, 2023, when the 43 buses being intercepted in Bay Bridge were ferrying 443 uh, children without documentation. Arising from that, we understood the magnitude of the issue that we had to deal with. So on that basis, firstly, during the festive period, we intensified our access control into the ports. We started making sure that all the buses that has been charged administrative fines before which has been around 15,000 rents per person when they bring illegal immigrants around the port we had to make sure that those buses are stopped and we literally made sure that they pay before they could to operate that is why in the period of three days that the second the third the fourth we were able to get nine million plus from those particular companies now going forward what have we done so immediately after the festive period we then convened most of the top conveyances, particularly the buses, into one room here in Pretoria. We had the CEO of the bus association from the Zimbabwean side and some of the owners of companies that side, including the South African ones. And we started engaging with them. Very robust conversation. One, we agreed that they need to put measures in place to assist us in dealing mm. with the issues of illegal migration. And what are those? One is to make sure when people procure cross-border tickets, they need to get a passport as a requirement. So if you buy, if it's Mike, I'm buying a ticket for Jeremy, I need to have Jeremy's passport. So that when you get into the bus on the day, you are able to produce your passport. So we had actually instructed them that that is what they need to do. Secondly, we indicated to them that if they continue not assisting us and they continue to ferry the uh, illegal migrants, the cross-border road transport agency is going to revoke their cross-border permits. And is the issue of we are we warned them that we are going to move to start charging them criminally for aiding and abetting according to the Immigration Act. And that on its own is then to take the matters to the next right. level. Mike Masiapato, thank you very much indeed for joining me. And before we go, we asked on our Daily Poll Friday, the ICJ deciding whether South Africa's accusation of genocide against Israel is plausible. We asked if South Africa managed to prove its case. The options were was, was well argued that South Africa failed to convince the court or more countries would join South Africa's case. Uh, a very slim majority saying that South Africa ultimately failed to convince the court. Today, in light of the interview that you've just heard, uh, how can border security be improved to prevent illegal entry? Um, we 
giving the options of invest in advanced technology, increasing collaboration with law enforcement agencies, or fostering stronger relationships with border communities. Please go to MoneyWeb on Twitter or X, and also on our LinkedIn page. I will have the results of that poll on the program tomorrow. MoneyWeb at midday. We're live at noon weekdays, then up as a podcast. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.